And here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Not a lot of folks know that, but we're right here, the Spice Radio Studio, specifically the heart of the Tennessee Valley. Today, in conversation, a University of Alabama college worker and a Rutgers lecturer about college unions and the Rutgers strike, an Alabama paper mill lied to OSHA about a worker's death and tried to cover it up. Warren Tidwell talks to us about recovery efforts in Camp Hill, Alabama, all that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number. The line is not open, but you can send us a text message. You can send us a text message at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And we can respond on the air. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week. We're going to be responding to a text message that we got during the week last week for our in our first story. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you got to follow us online, folks. In particular... TVLR.FM, that's right. Bookmark that tab, TVLR.FM. You will see new content almost every single day. Write-ups of our clips and original reporting as well. Uh, So make sure you bookmark that, TVLR.FM, and sign up for our newsletter at TVLR.FM slash contact in the notes form. Tell us if you want the daily newsletter or the weekly newsletter. We send those out every day. And every week, so you just let us know how much we want to bug you, and we will happily oblige. If you want to become a sustaining donor for the program to help us keep going, uh, remember our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners, then you can uh, do that at tvlr.fm donate. You can set it up to make a recurring donation automatically, or you can send us a one-time donation as well. tvlr.fm donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you are, you know, if you're on Patreon and you have, uh, you know, that that's where you like to get your content, then you can sign up there. And, you know, special benefit for patrons is you can listen to the show free of commercials. Totally free of commercials. There are no commercials in the uh, Patreon feed. So, you know, that's an added benefit. You can also buy our merch from our store tvlr.fm slash store. We are out of our hats. Totally out. I just mailed out the last one yesterday. The last hat. We've got no more hats, but we have stickers. We have 
shirts, and that's about it. We've got stickers and shirts. TVLR.fm slash store. Uh, and if you're a member of a union, then definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. We could not do the show without our local sponsors. Absolutely. We truly appreciate all of them. Uh, let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. We believe that Alabama and South's labor, the South's labor movement and working class deserve a bigger platform. We're hoping this project can make a difference on that front, and we could not do it without you. We want to thank everyone for tuning in. Whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener, we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Absolutely. Uh, checking out the chat. Appreciate everybody that is hanging out with us this morning. Um, we have, uh, I'm not sure if we're live on Facebook yet, but we have uh, Alex and Infinite Content in the YouTube chat, uh, per usual. Uh, Alex, um, very sorry that you lost your job on Thursday, but uh, you said that you're going to start looking for another job at the beginning of May, so I hope you enjoy the time off. And uh, yeah, there are definitely there are definitely jobs available at uh, the Postal Service, uh, UPS, um, and if you uh, you know become a, a UPS employee, you'll be able to take part in a historic strike potentially in August. Um, so. Uh, yeah, hopefully you're able to uh, hook up with uh, one of these uh, good-paying union jobs that are coming open. Absolutely. Infinite Content mentions uh, a situation evolving at U of Michigan. Um, and, and look at Adam giving out the legal disclaimer. That's right. Uh, that's right. It's not so much a legal disclaimer uh, exactly, but uh, just just because you know we do have a variety of sponsors and advertisers. And uh, not everything that we say, I mean, everything that we say uh our sponsors should agree with all of it because it's always correct right but uh, <laughs> we but uh it's not always going to be But just case. on the off chance just on the off chance that one of our sponsors happen to be wrong about something um we're we're letting people know that uh that we're not carbon cop copies of all of our sponsors and we appreciate them uh and you know it takes it takes all kinds and we're happy to work with a diverse uh with with people of diverse viewpoints um ha have you seen the situation evolving at u of michigan i have not been following it very closely i have to admit i have been ridiculously busy uh but i have been following the situation at, at rutgers a little bit more closely um and so very excited to bring you this conversation where else other than the valley labor report are you going hear a college worker from Alabama, uh, a union college worker from Alabama talking to uh, another college worker after successful, I think, I think rightfully described as a successful strike. Uh, nowhere else are you going to hear that conversation besides the Valley Labor Report. So we're excited for that. But first, we're going to talk about this crazy story. Um, and I think Infinite Content maybe was the first one to, to uh, flag it for us on Twitter. But also, Jack from New Jersey uh, sent us a text on the text line, 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857. Um, and, oh, wait, no, 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 it wasn't him. Who, who sent it to us then? Because he said something. Jack from New Jersey was talking about the Rutgers strike. Who sent, who sent this in? I don't know. Maybe it was an email. Now I'm not sure. But somebody sent us a message about the... Um, 
about this paper mill worker death. And they asked, did you hear about this uh, paper mill worker who died of electrocution at work last year? The company, this is coming from uh, our listener, the company tried to lie about the cause of death. Business Insider just came out with a story about it yesterday, April 14th. I work in manufacturing and the details of how unsafe this workplace is are really scary. OSHA proposed 227000 in fines. Thanks for your work. Thanks for listening. And so let's check out this Business Insider reporting because it is wild. It's absolutely crazy. And so the bottom line is that is is that a a paper mill worker in Alabama and not not a greenhorn either. You know, this is not somebody who just came in out of high school, didn't know what the hell they were doing and screwed some stuff up, right? Uh this was a 12-year veteran of the company. Been working there 12 years. Knows his stuff this guy. And he died because he was electrocuted because a supervisor did not lock out and tag out the machine. And then, after he was electrocuted, the company reported to OSHA that this guy, oh, he just had a heart attack. It wasn't related to our unsafe working conditions. He just had a heart attack. That's what they told OSHA. And then they... Also, the machine did not have a lockout tagout sign when the incident occurred. But then after the incident, they put up a lockout tagout sign on the machine and took a picture of that and sent it to the police department. Just bald-faced lying about a worker's death. I mean, this guy died because their boss screwed stuff up. And then, on top of that, they tried to cover it up. They tried to cover it up and just make it out like this guy. He just had a heart attack. He just had a heart attack. And so the coroner said, no, this doesn't look like a just a, you know, just a normal everyday heart attack. Heart attack. This guy was electrocuted, actually. And so the coroner reported that to OSHA. And then get this, the company's lawyer calls the coroner and says, hey, you know, would you care to uh, lie for us on your form and say that, no, actually, it was, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. He wasn't electrocuted. It was actually just a regular heart attack. Just insane. I mean, just vile, evil stuff here uh, from the company. South Coast Paper LLC. South Coast Paper LLC. I mean, just really, really crazy stuff. And so reading from this Business Insider piece, according to a report by the DOL's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, the company reported the incident as a heart attack and asked the local coroner's office to not list electrocution as a cause of death. Um, And this is another thing that's just kind of a sidebar. But coroners are elected, which is the craziest thing in the world. Uh, And so... You could imagine a situation where this goes a different way because the coroner's campaign was funded by South Coast Paper LLC. Um, right. Just the, cra- just the most bizarre thing in the world that coroners are elected positions. Um, but, but that's the case. That's the case. Uh, the, uh, the plant's manager and company general manager told an OSHA-certified health and safety officer that the worker... Um, uh, had died from electrocution, but the but 
the company had already written witness statements listing the cause of death as electrocution. But they went back and they were saying they were t- the company, you know, the big corporate entity was trying to say like, no, 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 no that's not it. Hmm. OSHA it's said awful. that yeah, OSHA said that the electrocution happened when the employee who had been at the company 12 years was working on the line of a sheeter machine with two other workers when they alerted the night shift supervisor that something was wrong with the conveyor's motor. The supervisor decided to replace the motor but did not lock out or tag out any of the equipment in the process and when the employee grabbed a metal rail connected to the conveyor system, he was shocked by the electricity. CPR was administered but he was pronounced dead on site. Lockout devices are placed on energy-isolating devices to hold them in a safe mode and to prevent the equipment from being controlled, while tagout devices indicate that the equipment can't be used. OSHA wrote in its report that the supervisor had not had any formal or on-the-job electrical or lockout and tagout training Mm. and, quote, had minimal knowledge of electrical practices. And this is another this is another issue about management not coming from the line. The idea that you can be a manager in a manufacturing environment and have and have zero formal or on the job electrical training. That's wild. That's wild stuff here. OSHA said that a local police chief had been informed that tampering of the site was done before and after they had left. This included cleaning out the area where the motor was located and adding a lockout tagout sign to the machine. Lockout tagout was not done for the machine, but was in place when pictures were given to the police department, OSHA wrote right. in a report. They knew they did wrong, yeah. and they tried to cover it up, and that's just despicable. South Coast paper, quote, does not have energy control procedures in place, and no locks or tags are available to no locks or tags are available to maintenance employees, other than two personal locks that one worker brought from his previous employer. Holy crap. OSHA proposed $227,000 in penalties. It noted that also in 2021, OSHA had inspected South Coast Papers facility in Burlington, New Jersey, after an employee had lost three fingers while servicing a machine and had issued a citation to the company related to its energy control procedures. Just terrible stuff here. And no reason for it. No reason for it at all. Alex says, I'm in tech, so I'm blessed to have opportunity. Uh, That said, very, very few unions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is just just really, really, really gross stuff. Pittsburgh Dude 87 mentions that if coroners were appointed, corruption could still enter the process. Not sure how we could fix it under the current system. I think that probably, probably appointments would be maybe less subject to corruption but I I, I don't know about I don't that. Know. I think I think either way it really just depends on how engaged the community is and like yeah. is anyone actually paying attention because frankly you know you're you're not prone to pay attention to what the coroner's doing, right? right? That's not a high profile position. So but this is a good case of where it could really be relevant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, uh wild story, really gross stuff. Uh but you know, that's what uh that's what that's what bosses do. That's what companies do, right? That's why uh, that's why it's important to be organized against this kind of stuff because uh, they're going to wa- run wild if you allow them. Um, so we're going to take a break really quick, uh, and we're going to be back with this conversation between a uh, 
Rutgers striker. They just came off strike last week. And a UA college worker, member of the United Campus Workers uh, CWA. So we'll be right back with this conversation. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words. How a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up 
and made history. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morris and my co-host is Adam Keller. We've got a text message line open. You can call, uh, you can send us a text message at 844-899-TVLR, 844-899-8857 if you want to uh, get in on the show. Um, so uh, we had uh, some some chatter in, in the Facebook uh, uh, chat from Amy uh, saying, hearing that a paper mill lied, can't believe that, uh, with an obvious uh, hint of sarcasm there. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of paper mills, my uh, first bit of reporting on the J Main paper mill closure is out uh, both in In These Times and The Real News Network. You can check that out at therealnews.com or In These Times mag.com in these times google in these times google the real news network and both of them are on the front pages of the websites right now good job Uh, jacob so yeah it was um i appreciate it uh happy about that we've got some more stuff coming we're going to be having a a podcast come from some of the conversations that i had as well as as a longer um as a longer piece about it so uh but this is kind of a uh just kind of to introduce you to the situation there um, and I appreciated them giving me the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was really cool. So, um, so I'm going to read this from Jack from New Jersey, uh, that, uh, because it's relevant for this portion of the show. Uh, Hey Jake and Adam, it's Jack from New Jersey. I wanted to share some labor organizing news from around here, uh, for the past week. This was sent six days ago. Staff and faculty at Rutgers University were on strike, the largest public sector strike in state history. They have been without a contract since June and faced the university president lying that public sector strikes are illegal in New Jersey. Demands included substantial wage increases, health insurance for adjuncts, adjunct pay proportional to full-time non-tenured lecturers instead of this two-tier nonsense, increased graduate student pay, and much more. I had the privilege of spending my afternoon Saturday supporting the pickets at the Newark campus campus and the solidarity of tenure staff students and community for striking workers was truly inspiring. At about 1.30 a.m., Governor Murphy, union officials, and the university announced a tentative agreement. It was actually a tentative framework, not a tentative agreement, but uh, through uh, though rank-and-file union members emphasized that the strike is suspended, not over, conditional on follow-through with the contract. Like all workers, they play an important part of my in my community, and I hope they all get the contract they deserve. Um, so that is uh, well said, Jack from New Jersey. And here to talk about that with us, we have Hank Calais, a part-time lecturer at Rutgers University, and John Gilmer, a college worker at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa and a member of the United Campus Workers, uh, CWA, the union representing um, uh, college workers here in Alabama. Hank, John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, no problem. No problem. Uh, we, uh, uh, we at Rutgers appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to kind of fill you in on, um, you know, where things stand and how we got to the point that we're on. I'll just a real quick correction. It's Callet, not Calais. Callet. You know, it look, okay. Yeah, it looks that way, but this is, you know, yeah, uh, it's Callet. So appreciate uh, the correction, duly noted. And so, you know, Hank, uh, 
really appreciate your your time on the show. And so let's uh, we'll go with introductions and and we'll start with John. And uh, you know, John, talk to us about what you do for the University of Alabama, your involvement in the union, and also maybe explain a bit for listeners. Um, some of the differences in public sector collective bargaining laws um, for Alabama and some of the, you know, uh, some of the broad strokes of differences between Alabama and New Jersey. And, and you know, Hank can kind of fill in the details on on the New Jersey specifics. But uh, but, John, you know, uh, talk to us about that. Absolutely. Um, so I serve in student life uh, here on staff. At the University of Alabama. Uh, so I'm the Assistant Director of Student Involvement, and that means I spend a great deal of time working with our student organizations. So I'm sort of at the uh, intersection of university policy and student organizations. So it does put me in a good position to learn a lot about the inner workings of the university and how it's affecting students and staff and faculty. So I've been here as a member of the United Campus Workers uh, Alabama chapter for about two years and have been engaged as a campus fellow too, uh, trying to work in a really intentional way to grow our membership. Uh, one thing to answer your question in general about organizing in Alabama, of course, we're a right to work state uh, and it is essentially not a possibility for us to acquire a contract. So. Our objectives are broadly similar in that we are advocating and rallying for better health care, better compensation, sort of institutional respect for our most vulnerable workers. But we don't have the opportunity to agitate towards something like a contract. However, that's not to say that our our work uh, can't end up with this with similar outcomes, but that we don't have that this sort of that that structure that that. uh, specific focus in, in our advocacy and our, our organizing on campus. And so that, and, and so I guess just spend a little bit of time uh, explaining, you know, why you would then be involved in a union if you don't have this formalized process, government sanctioned process for an election and contract negotiations, because even some union members, they're like, well, if I can't do this government sanctioned collective bargaining, if I can't have, uh, you know, government seal of approval through an election process, then what's the, you know, what's the point of being in a union? Can you even be in a union? Are you really a union? You know, uh, all of those kind of questions come to mind. Yeah, well, you know, we, we are we are workers here on campus, and I think that's where our power comes from is in our solidarity. And so I think that what I've been encouraged by is our, we're mostly uh, faculty, but I am one of the about we have maybe ten percent of us are staff, and we have a lot of grad students. And I think one thing that I'm emerging that's been seeing that emerge it's encouraging is that folks are realizing that even without that end goal of a contract, we're still able to influence conversations to leverage our power collectively in gathering on campus, being seen on campus, and organizing organizing in that way. Um, so I think that, that even without a contract, it's still something that we have the, the powers and the workers at, at the very base here. And I think the university, as it's starting to realize, just completely losing control of its staff in particular, uh, they, they had what's called a chime-in survey. It's sort of a cute reference to Denny Chimes, the bell tower here. And uh, about 80% of staff who were surveyed felt they were poorly compensated. So the university right now is in a position where it needs to, to has to reckon with its workers. And so I think even without a contract, we're fired up and we're encouraged by this moment and are trying to do our best to take advantage of it. Um, one thing, though, I will mention, though, is that you're right. It is a challenge. I think there's we're not in a state where, where unions are well understood. In fact, they're, they're fairly rare. Uh, and so I think that a conversation starter uh, in uh, New Jersey 
about unions may be very, very different from one in Alabama where folks will say things like, I didn't even know we had a union or I didn't know we could unionize. Uh, so I think that that's that uh, that messaging is, is more complicated in a state like Alabama. Right. I've even had people say that I thought unions were illegal in Alabama. I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I didn't know you could be in a union. I thought that was illegal, which is just wild. But, you know, some people have that understanding of things. So, Hank, let's go to you and explain to us, you know, by way of introduction, uh, what you do at, at Rutgers and and the union that you're a part of, and maybe some of the uh, some of the differences in in public sector collective bargaining laws in New Jersey. Yeah, so I um I am a member of the executive board of the uh, the adjunct um, faculty union at Rutgers. Uh, technically, at Rutgers, we're called uh, part time lecturers. Uh, but um, we, we've been pushing hard to, one, to change the name just because we want to make it clear that we're integral to, to the way the university operates, um, mm -hmm. the university. Uh, in, the, in the contemporary era that we're in, the use of adjuncts has changed dramatically. We're now um, central to the way um, education is provided uh, across the country. Um, so, um, so, see, I'm on the executive board of the adjunct union. There are three facts, three faculty unions, um, all three of which voted to strike. Um, one of them is, is represents a lot of clinicians, uh, doctors um, at the medical school and in the hospitals um, that are affiliated with Rutgers. So uh, they um, they were not in the same position to walk out as we were because they had they had patients. So they had to a lot of them had to stay on. Uh, they would come out during their lunch hours and and and, and march with us during um, during the picketing. Um, so there are three faculty unions. There are uh, twelve other unions, I believe, at Rutgers, and we've organized um, a large coalition. Um, we call it Crew, the Coalition of Rutgers Unions. Very creative, right? Um, <laughs> and, uh, so so you know we we were agitating um, across campus, uh, across our three cam major campuses, and. Um, we are in a very different position, I think, than you guys are down in Alabama. We um, Rutgers, in its state constitution, recognizes the right of union, of unions to organize and to uh, represent workers. Um, state workers, uh, public workers, are in a slightly different position. While there's no law that prevents um, us from organizing, obviously, uh, we, we've had a union, we've had multiple unions at Rutgers for you know going on going on forty years, fifty years. Um, excuse me. There is some common law uh, on the books tied to um, a lot of the protests of the late 60s. Um, and this, you know, uh, at that time, Rutgers was a much more conservative state than uh, Rutgers. Uh, New Jersey was a much more conservative state than it is now. Hmm. Um, and uh, the courts ruled at that time that public worker strikes, um, while not against the law, were, were not necessarily protected. They imposed injunctions at that time. And what's happened over the years is that most strikes, most public worker strikes in New Jersey have been among uh, K-12 uh, school teachers, and the courts have generally ruled, um, issued injunctions preventing them from uh, from staying out and finding them and doing that. So um, that's kind of where the what the case law looks like. We we felt um, and still feel that you know striking. Um, striking is legal. There's nothing on the books right. that says that it shouldn't be. Um, Rutgers would have had to have made the case that we were um, disrupting the business of the state, and um, you know, well, that that's kind of what unions are supposed to do anyway. So, 
right. Yeah, and, yeah, and so cool. that that was part of the uh the, that was part of the thing that they did saying that that you know that they lied and, and said that public sector strikes are just carte blanche illegal and that and and like you said that's not exactly the case. Uh there's no law specifically prohibiting it, but they're not protected in the same way that maybe private sector uh strikes right. would be. And so you got to go to the courts and get the courts to do an injunction and and, and Rutgers simply had not done that yet. And so therefore the strike was not illegal um at at, at the outset. Right. So you know we, when we voted um we, we had an extensive process um, of, you know, we, we began or we've been organizing since before the end of the contract in some ways or another, but once the contract mm-hmm. expired, we ramped up our organizing um, and, you know, we, we had a, a massive, uh, we had massive support amongst uh, all of the job categories that were involved with the strike. So each of the three unions um, had um, majority votes and um, that, that, that ended up being, I think, um, like our vote for the fa- for the adjunct faculty. We had something like fifty five or sixty percent vote. Ninety five percent of our members voted to strike. Uh, numbers were similar for the full timers. Um, but we we shorthand them as the full timers. There's a union that represents the tenured and tenure line faculty, uh, the non tenured faculty who are um, contingent in different ways than we are. And uh, and the grad students, they're in one union, and there are a couple of other job categories, I think, in their postdocs and a couple of others. Um, there's our union, which represents the adjuncts, and then there's the medical union. Um, so all three of those unions had similar uh, numbers when we voted um, to voted to authorize the strike. Uh, we we gave Rutgers really three weeks to continue bargaining before we actually voted to walk out. Um, and on the eve of um, of the walkout with the potential that uh, Holloway, uh, our president, Jonathan Holloway, uh, would um, go, would seek out an injunction, the governor stepped in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and uh, the, um, you know, that, that, that's all uh, just really, really great stuff that you were able to get so much support um, for, for this kind of thing, because striking is, is, is really difficult. Um, and, and we're going to get, a little bit more into that, but uh, before we do, continuing with some of you know some some personal introductions and stuff, you know, I've read uh, some of your pieces on your Substack, um, and and you're a part-time lecturer uh, in um, journalism, and yes. uh, and and you mentioned about your the 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 kind of conflicting sense of self i guess uh, because you typically you're on the other side of a microphone interviewing someone uh, or or the other side of the table interviewing someone trying to get their story and now people are trying to get your story so uh you know talk to us about about that tension and, and kind of you know i'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on that it, it, it is a little surreal for me um like you said i am used to, i'm 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 uh i was a i'm still Actually, you know, I, I, I'm more freelance now. I do a lot less writing um, for publications. Um, but I, I have a, my history is as an editor and and reporter on uh, at local newspapers in New Jersey um, and for state websites in New Jersey, um, reaching out, calling public officials, talking to people, talking to people on the picket line when there are strikes, you know, doing all of that. I'm used to getting the information from them, the stories from them and trying to tell their stories now I'm in front of the camera, you know, with a microphone being put in front of my face. It's 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 unbelievably surreal 
Um, and I, I told my students um, when we came back into the classroom this past week that um, in some respects, as a journalist, I wish that this experience being um, being the one having to answer questions, I wish I had had that when I started my career. Mm. Um, because it's given me kind of insight on what it's like to have to field questions on the spot. Um, and, and, and it's given me a little bit, probably I, I've always, th- I always think of myself as being empathetic anyway, but I, I think I have a little bit more empathy for the person that I'm sticking uh, my tape recorder, um, <laughs> you know, in their face. Right. right. So um, that, that's, that's been interesting. Um, you know, and it, and it's, it, it was a crash course for me. Um, I've been on, I've been working on the media structure for our union for you know going on two years but i haven't been in the spokesman position and um because mm-hmm. i was on the line um a lot of our um our other executive board members were in negotiations so they were like behind locked doors for 12 14 hours a day because i was on the line and um i, I kind of tasked myself um was kind of playing free safety out there i was kind of like troubleshooting i didn't have a picket captain role or anything like that um so i was doing some troubleshooting and i was in i was kind of interceding trying to make sure that the press had um comment and and you know Mm -hmm. one talking to me and then making sure that uh, members had an opportunity um to to put the word out as well it's been it's been it's been a real it's been different for me definitely not not what i'm used to uh Not what I'm used to doing. I'm used to being on the other side, like you said. For sure. And I think that, you know, some of that that, uh, you know, having that empathy, I think, is 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 really key for journalists. You know, there's a and and there's there's a certain sense where you do want a journalist to be kind of a view from above. And and, you know, I'm not super interested in a journalist being empathetic, maybe to politicians or people in power and things like this. Right. Uh, But. I, I I do wonder if the kind of um, proletarianization of the media is part of the reason why maybe we're starting to see more sympathetic coverage of workers' issues, right? Because if you look at some of the things, and obviously there's still a lot of crazy stuff out there about how like, oh, the rail strike would have cost two billion dollars in, in uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a day, and that's bad, and and so therefore Congress should should stop them from doing that. But there was a lot of really sympathetic coverage where that wasn't really the case, right? In the in the in the '90s or early 2000s or the '80s, there was a lot of, you know, the media just firmly kind of took the side of the boss. Uh, it it seems to me is is my reading of the history. I, th- I think that's that's been the history in recent years. Um, I think we're just at the beginning, though, of this kind of move, maybe back to um, sympathetic labor coverage. Um, I don't think that we're seeing a lot of it, like on um, like the major networks, right? If we look, if we look at the kind of the, the legacy media, I don't think that we have that that the coverage of the rail strike, for instance, or or the academic strikes have had um, have, have been as positive as they could be. Um, they, mm-hmm. they, a lot of that coverage, I don't think. I think it lacked nuance. So. Right. Um, if you if you were to ask people, you know, when you ask a, you know an average person out in the community, what you know, why would somebody go on strike? Why is there, you know, my dad, for instance, he's like, why are you guys going on strike? You just want money, right? And well, yeah, we all wanted raises, of course, right. but 
Um, the lack of nuance in a lot of the coverage is, has meant that, for instance, with the rail strike, the, the real issue being that scheduling and sick time, mm -hmm. that was like central. It it got short shrift. And you, like you said, we ended up with, um, you know, politicians talking about how it would disrupt the economy, but not asking what um, what the lives of these rail workers were like right. and what dangers the scheduling um, and, and lack of sick time might pose to the communities around them, around where the rails are. And then, you know, in short shrift, we end up with East Palestine. So, you know, I don't, well, don't want to make, make it seem like it's a direct link, but there are connections right. with there. So. Well, and I think that that question is a really good place to start digging into this situation at Rutgers. Why did you go on strike? What were the issues about? Each of the, the academic unions had different specific um, needs when we walked out. So for the adjuncts, we we boiled our um, we, we had three major demands, uh, equal pay, um, pay equity. That meant um, that we wanted to be paid on the same scale um, as the non tenure track full timers. Um, right now, um, you know, we uh, at, before the strike, we'll say, um, before before all of this organizing, we were probably paid at 60 percent um, of, of what they were paid uh, for doing similar work. Right. They, they're, they're doing it full time. We're not asking if they're making ninety thousand dollars a year. We're not asking for ninety thousand dollars. But if we work half as much as they do, we want to be paid, you know, about half what they get. So um, seems reasonable. Yeah, when you would think that equal pay is enshrined in law, right? We have the Civil Rights Act. One of um, one of my colleagues uh, in our in our union is a labor historian, and you know, as he said, I mean, the the, the idea of pay equity is it was central to the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act. So, um, you know, we we've kind of you know we've been having this conversation about pay equity in in a lot of ways for a long time, um, but you know, the capitalist system doesn't seem to um, be too interested in the, the capitalist system right now is looking to to kind of push pay down across the board and create pay equity that way we want to we want to raise everybody up so that was one element of it the other another element was job security um we we are we are rehired uh, semester to semester so i could teach two classes in the fall um with and but not know if i'm coming back in the spring or the next fall and um, that wreaks havoc with um, a lot of people's lives. Um, you know, if you are, uh, especially if you're younger, a younger adjunct, a lot of younger adjuncts um, are people who are trying to get into academia and are unable to find full-time work. Uh, many of them have kids. Um, if, if you're working on a semester-to-semester -semester basis, getting childcare becomes a nightmare. Planning, planning those kinds of things out becomes a nightmare. And and so we want job security. We want to know that we're going to be back, especially if we've proven ourselves. So I'm now um, I'm just finishing up my um, tenth year um, as a, an adjunct at Rutgers. Um, I'm lucky um, that our journalism department is um, is run by really conscientious pro labor people. Um, so I know that you know they're going to say, okay, you're coming back. I'm coming back. I'm not really worried about it. But not every one of the departments at Rutgers operates the way that my journalism department runs. And many of those people are, you know, they're, you know, they they get their appointment letters late, they get their offers late, 
they they don't they just don't know what's going to happen from semester to semester. So we want to change that. We want longer term appointments. Um, and, you know, and and the the we want that to be accelerating. So the longer you're here, the less you have less less uncertainty you face. Um, and the last the last major point was healthcare. Um, we as adjuncts don't have access to healthcare. We're we're not we're excluded from all the plans, you know, and um, we we want to see that change. Um, the graduate students are looking for guaranteed funding. Um, it differs department. For, I, I didn't. I learned. A, I learned a lot about how universities operate during this um, during this stretch of organizing. But um, grad workers are appointed on a, you know, some some get one year appointments, some get two. Um, but most of them, um, you know, when they enter a program, they're looking at the likelihood of having to spend four or five years doing their research so that they can write their dissertation. I mean, that's why they're there. The research is um, the research, you know, is not just for them. It's something that helps the university. It'll be published by the university. It'll be housed at the university's libraries. Um, often the research is done in conjunction with full-time um, faculty at, at Rutgers, um, you know, and and so they um they they need more stable guaranteed funding that's centralized so that there's um so they again it comes down to this idea of some some level of certainty so that they know um for the life of their time at, at, at Rutgers um they will have the ability to um to complete their degree they don't have to worry that um you know that they'll be cut loose or that there won't there won't be work for them uh, full-timers were looking for more control over scheduling. They Rutgers automated its scheduling system, and it's been really difficult. Um, it you know co courses get dropped, courses get changed, um, uh, scheduling patterns that may have been in place for years get upended, and so the full-timers are very much they're they're very concerned about that. Uh, the non-tenure track faculty wanted job security. They wanted um, a potential path maybe to tenure. Um, so, and, and then the med the, the medical, um, folks are looking for wage increases that put them in line with pe other people around the country who do what they do. Um, and they are, um, the, the medical union is a kind of a legacy union. It, they came in, um, it, Rutgers medical school is relatively new. Um, there was a state medical school for years and there were some, uh, corruption issues and, um, so the state had stepped in, forced a merger of the medical school with Rutgers, um, and so now these these medical workers and medical teachers um, are part of the Rutgers community. Um, and there's and there's a debate that I don't. I'll be honest, I don't fully understand about detenuring and um, and, and kind of remaking what's going on over there. They want the protections that they deserve um, for their jobs and. Uh, um, you know, and that's just three of the unions, other unions, there's another union that is in the process of a strike pledge. Um, and that's the university's, um, it's called the um, Union of Rutgers Administrators, which I think uh, they do this, they probably do similar things to what you're talking about, John, right? So they're, they, they're they, without them, the university would collapse. You know, they order the food, they, they run the dining halls, they manage the bus system, they schedule the classes they they do every you know they 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 field requests for um 
or diplomas, you know, they, they do all of that. Uh, and they do it behind the scenes and nobody ever thinks about what they do. So they're, they're now, um, they're much closer to a potential strike. So that's kind of the, I guess it's kind of the layout, um, of where we are. And the result of the strike was that, uh, there's a what, what the bargaining committee has called a tentative framework, um, but the yes. tentative framework, not a, still not a tentative agreement, um, which is what typically ends strikes, but the strike hasn't been ended. It's suspended and, um, you know, based on the assumption that they will be getting a tentative agreement. Um, but this tentative, tentative framework lays out a lot of wins in these areas. So can you talk to us, you know, you mentioned in, in one of your pieces that uh, well, it's it's not exactly everything that you wanted, uh, but it but it's a lot. And and so, you know, what what did you win? Where were y'all wanting to go further? And then I guess something that I'm interested in as somebody who's who's never been in a strike um, a, as a, a federal employee. I wonder how do you balance the the pragmatic kind of stuff uh you, you know like okay it's fine that we didn't get everything that we wanted here because we got a lot of stuff versus you know are we leaving part of our membership out to dry for the benefit of a you know are we allowing the boss to kind of crack us up in some way uh so so walk us through those things. What did you win? Where are you wanting to um where were y'all wanting to go a little bit further and 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 then how do you how do you uh uh weigh these these things? Right. Um the the fact that there are three unions doing the negotiations is complicated things. I mean, we had to build a coalition. Um so you know that one of the things that we did when we j just before we started this is we 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 attempted to merge the three unions into one big faculty union, um, which I still think would have strengthened our hand um, even more than 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 you know we than where we were um, because it it would have made it impossible to peel people off. Right. That's always the the that's always where management wants to go. Let's get a deal with this group and uh, you know. They'll like it so the other group won't get anything. Um, and that's that's a real difficult thing to navigate because, you know, we have a responsibility directly to our individual members for each of these unions. So, um, you know, and, and there's a legal issue with, um, you know, if, if, if we get a TA, let's say, one of the unions gets a TA, they have a responsibility to put it out to a vote of their of their membership. Um, and if they don't, if they try to drag their heels, there, there are some potential legal ramifications for that. Um, you know, because we're not allowed technically to go on strike for the other other unions. So we went out and strike together, under, I think understanding the potential um, potential you know pitfalls that we would face. So um, the full time the the full time union um, won some significant changes in scheduling. Um, there's going to be a um, a lot of it is being handled through like new committees that are being created, but um, there is a um, there is um, something that's going to be put in place to deal with the scheduling issue. They won raises for all of their members. Um, there, there is still there are still some significant stuff that has to be hashed out about, um, in particular about about graduate um, graduate student needs. 
Um, one, um, there's some there's some language in the framework around um, the, the you know the length of their funding and the recognition of a, a class of graduate student. Uh, it's called a grad fellow. What happens is that one semester they might be a graduate worker. The next semester they may be a functioning primarily as a student doing research. And when when they move from graduate assistant to grad fellow, they drop out of the union. They lose their health insurance. And they work, you know, they're, doing, they're working on research that's going to benefit the university. They then go back to doing, let's say, the next semester, the next year, doing graduate assistant work or, or, or TA work, and they get pulled back into the union. So it's their health care is on, it's off, it's on, it's off. Um, and, it, you know, again, as you can imagine, um, it's it's it, it's it creates amazing difficulties in their lives. So there's some language in there that's supposed to address that, but not not all the grad students at this point are happy. Um, they think a little bit more needs to be done at the very least. Um, for us as as part time people, as adjuncts, uh, we um, the the framework has provided will calls for us to get significant raises. Um, in the first year, we're looking at thirty some odd percent. Um, and depending on um, that, that's if you if for for um, uh, faculty that stays at the same level. So it could be as much as 40, 45% if you are somebody who gets the the, the upfront raise and then gets um, a bump tied to a change in status. So I'm technically what's called a part-time lecturer too. Under the new contract, and one of the things that we're still trying to iron out is, is where I would like somebody like me would fall. I could move up to, let's say, a part time lecturer, or what we're hoping will be called an adjunct lecturer, or um, I think it's just a lecturer, um, lecturer three or lecturer four. And that would include bumps in, in money as well. So some of our members could see, you know, 40% increases um, that first year. Some of them will see less. Um, but the the pay structure is going to be uh, we're not going to be at the beginning we won't be where the non tenure track faculty are um, by the end we'll be close to where they are they'll be getting their raises so we'll still be a little behind but it'll be much closer um, the, and the and that money is going to be a game changer for so many people who are teaching um, on this part time level. Right. And and John had mentioned to me this morning that uh, that y'all had actually gotten um, retroactive pay actually for uh, uh, for the time of the strike as well, which is uh, which is really impressive and, and, and uh, right. important for your members. And, you know, and so, John, as a you know college worker in Alabama, I you know, I'm interested in, in some of your thoughts about this situation and, and what it means for. Uh, you know what it means for your members and and your organizing and um and and it, and if there is anything that that you'd be interested in in asking Hank. Absolutely, and Hank, y'all y'all's accomplishment has really been uh, extremely encouraging to us down here. I think seeing the ways in which the same essentially this that what you're sharing is you know, that resonates with me because so many of our members and so many of the folks we've talked to as we canvas on campus are sharing the exact same concerns and are experiencing the exact same problems of, you know, complete lack of access for healthcare for our part-time temporary instructors, for folks who do have access to healthcare, especially for our, we talked a lot to our custodial staff, we're seeing uh, folks who do not have um, any, have, have not received any training on or guidance on how to use their FSA or HSA accounts and have heard about during the transition from, from uh, technical vendors 
uh, for those accounts, uh, people losing access to their FSAs, their money just just rolls over and is gone. So I think hearing, seeing what y'all have accomplished is, is, is not just an encouragement, it's also a plan for us. We're still at the very early stages of building power here in the state of Alabama on campuses. So our primary focus has been just growing membership and helping to dispel a lot of the confusion and misunderstanding and, and really anti-labor propaganda that is so pervasive down here that has led to a culture where a lot of workers are fearful. They, they, we, we have conversations about labor organizing the default reaction for some folks is fear. And I think seeing y'all accomplish what you have and, and helping also, as you mentioned, bringing together different factions, different unions into something that's more wall-to-wall. -wall. We're small enough to where we have to be wall-to-wall. -wall. We have grad students, faculty, and staff all in the same group. Uh, but seeing that that's been successful for y'all has helped to really uh, centralize power and, and, and organization uh, from that uh, has been, that, that's, I think, very helpful to see. Um, but one question I have for you, Hank, thinking along those lines is what are some of the obstacles y'all have overcome uh, in growing membership on campus, What, especially as y'all work to include a broader uh, collection of individuals on campus, including staff? What have been some of the challenges and how have y'all worked to overcome that? I think one of the challenges that we we face um, and we continue to face is, you know, when you bring different job categories together, there are different needs. And um, we work really hard to build solidarity through conversation, um, trust. Um, you know, it, we, it, it took a long time. It, you know, not every um, negotiations in recent history that we've been engaged with, not every contract has gone smoothly. Not every, you know, there are there is a history of. Um, you know, unions um, taking care of one group and not necessarily the other here. Um, so we had to work really hard. We had to, we, we, the, the way that we've overcome a lot of this is through conversations. We spent, um, I got involved in the union in probably fall of uh, 21, um, just due to help with doing some media work as a journalist and um, quickly um found myself being mobilized and, and, um, and, and um, I, so I jumped in full, you know, I jumped in with both feet and we've been running uh, since then. So we started with um, an effort to merge our unions, which got, um, which got us talking to our members as, as, um, as part-time lecturers and adjuncts. Um, we started talking to our members about power, the need for power as we were getting ready to go into a contract campaign. So, these conversations for us started early. Um, they, um, you know, we spent probably three months uh, working on the merger campaign. We got um, uh, 1,000, 1,100 um, signatures on this merger request um, that represented about, oh, probably about 60, 65% of not of the membership but of the of the bargaining unit, so um, we have about fifty two percent. Fifty three percent is our density. Um, you know, I always say getting you know getting part time people to to sign up for a union is really difficult, um, and a lot of times our um, our membership is not stable because people aren't necessarily teaching every semester. Um, so you know that's a pretty decent number considering, um, but we had about sixty five percent of every of of all part time lectures, all adjuncts vote to merge with a full-time union, um, which would have created a much larger union. The medical union did held the same vote a little bit after us with, with similar results, right? So um, 
that got us talking about um, talking to our members early before we started on the contract campaign, and it got us talking with the, with the other unions, um, and it put the notion of unity out there in a way that um, I, I I can't say I, I can't speak to what has happened before, but for me, it put unity out there in a way that I don't think I've ever felt on campus. Um, we also started polling our members very early on. This this actually occurred before I got involved. Um, we wanted to know what they wanted, so our um, you know we wanted to make sure that our contract campaign represented the needs and desires of of the full membership. Um, you know, it's been very important to us as a um, as an adjunct union, and I and I think it's important to the other unions as well that. Um, that we be as democratic and open as possible. Transparency has been kind of our mantra. Um, we, we don't, we, you know, we don't want to surprise people. Um, we know not everybody's going to be happy with everything that gets that comes out of this contract, but we want to make sure that everybody feels a part of it. So, like for instance, um, Monday and Tuesday we're planning two big um, membership meetings. So, and we're doing two um, because you know some people teach on Monday, may teach Monday night, can't make it, so they're going to come to the Tuesday one. Um, we want we want them to know exactly where things are. Um, there's been some problems during the strike in terms of communications because of the way the, the way the government governor's involvement kind of locked everybody in a room in, in the state capitol. But we've made a real strong effort um, to just keep talking, and I think that um, that that's been kind of the single most important thing. The more members we talk to, the more we we seem to get them on our side. Uh, and when we've run into uh, members who are afraid, who are um, like we we had a number of people who are, are real strong labor uh, people who said, you know, we can't we can't strike or you know this this action is going to uh, hurt our students. And we had to have conversations around that about how you know. This is, you know, we're we're not out to, to harm students. We're out to to support them, and we can support them better by winning a better contract. Um, not to mention that we have tremendous, uh, tremendous and inspiring support from students on the line. We had students organizing concerts, um, raising money for our strike fund. Um, it, it was it was really inspiring, and I think for a lot of us, and this is kind of gets off the question. A lot of us feel more connected to the campus and the university now than we did before right i'm a part of that i'm on i'm on campus a couple of days a week as a part-time lecturer i graduated from rutgers um and this is the most connected that i've felt and that's because of these conversations um it allowed us to kind of cut across lines so yeah that is so extraordinarily encouraging to hear hank and uh yeah and, and that's i think one thing that we're seeing is the more folks we get into the room the more conversation we have the more that we're we're having that's on a smaller very small scale but growing that same effect and uh one thing i want to share too that resonated with me uh, in what you shared hank is that a lot of times folks will say well i love the university i love this working for these for serving the students and it's like we do too and we want it we, we love it so much we want it to be done better and we want to create an environment where people thrive and that kind of reframing for me too has been so helpful in in getting me fired up about about having these conversations is that it's not about being adversarial necessarily it's about calling up calling everyone up like we have to be building a better campus community and if folks are standing in the way of that they need to reevaluate what kind of campus they want because they want the best possible campus they need to, to, to support their workers. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, that's why I, I make a point of, um, you know, I have my Rutgers shirt on, right? Um, we have a lot of union shirts. So I wore them during the, during the strike, but I make a point of, of, of wearing some of this Rutgers stuff, especially when I'm talking about this stuff, because I want that, that there's a message I think that comes with that that says I'm I'm a member of the union I'm working for for the workers but I'm also a member of this community I'm an alum I'm a faculty member um, I am you know my my niece attends Rutgers this is this is central to it really in many ways Rutgers has become central to to my identity um, and that's important to me and I want people to understand that that's why I'm in the middle of this I want Rutgers to be the best Rutgers it can be right so um yeah hank john uh i could talk to y'all about this all day but <laughs> we do have to we, we've got to go ahead and wrap it up I, I i think this is you know fantastic stuff uh hank very very excited for y'all over there we're going to continue to monitor the situation uh hope you'll keep us updated if uh uh you know a, as things progress and um and and congratulations uh good luck Good luck and uh, uh, keep up the fight. Yeah, I have a piece. It uh, should be early next week in the Progressive. Um, awesome. On this as well. So um, if you if you send you if you want to send your uh, listeners over there, um, they Perfect. can see. So all excellent. Right. Thanks all. Uh, John Gilmer is a member of the United Campus Workers of America uh, at the University of Alabama, and Hank Callett is a member of one of the Rutgers unions that went on strike last week. Uh, you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. We're going to take a break really quick and be right back with Warren Tidwell. Before we go, I want to mention that uh, the North Alabama Area Labor Council, which is the Regional Federation of Unions, is having a barbecue uh, at 11. At today. Bron today at Braun Spring Park. And I'm actually going to be cutting out early to start making some hamburgers for y'all. So if you want hamburgers made by me, then go on down to Bronze Spring Park Pavilion 1, and uh, we're going to have hamburgers, we're going to have sausage links, we're going to have chicken, we're going to have um, barbecue sandwiches from Lawler's. But the rest of the stuff's going to be made by us. So uh, really excited about it. Head on down Bronze Spring Park Pavilion 1 from 11 to 4. Uh, unions from North Alabama are going to be out there. Um, going to be a, you know, a smaller affair, but it, it will be fun. We will have plenty of food so come on down uh and with that we're gonna go ahead and head into a break and adam is gonna uh uh take you out with um with warren tidwell from hometown action there's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers but that's not the case with ibw558 we have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year with 8,000 ojt hours 900 classroom hours osha 30 and a state license our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need Ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Do you work in an auto manufacturing plant? Are you tired of taking pride in your work without getting the respect you deserve? Consider joining the fight to unionize. Auto workers across the industry are coming together because with a union, we can negotiate for the pay benefits and security that we deserve and can help sustain our families. In union plants, workers bargain for long-term wage increases, competitive bonuses, and more affordable benefits. You can join the growing wave of organizing today. Find out more and contact us at Uniting Auto Workers on Facebook or contact UAW Region 8 in Lebanon, Tennessee by going to www.uawregion8.net. 
That's www.uawregion, the number eight, dot N-E-T. A better future is ours. All right, folks, you are still listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller. My co-host, Jacob Morrison, he has dipped out for the morning to go to the North Alabama Labor Council barbecue, and we hope you will uh, join us there if you are in the area for sure. Uh, Really looking forward to the barbecue. Hope to see some of our listeners. Hope to see some good union folks in the area enjoying some food and fellowship. So our next interview, I'm really looking forward to, I think it's going to be some important information, uh, some information that's really not getting out in the mainstream media, frankly. Uh, And I think it's important that we lift up the communities in our state that have experienced tragedy. And certainly the community of Camp Hill, Alabama, has experienced a lot of tragedy uh, in the past month or so. And one of the folks I know that is doing a lot of good work down there is Warren Tidwell. Uh, Warren's been on the show before, uh, previously in his capacity with Hometown Action. Uh, He is actually branching out. He's got a new project, uh, which he's going to tell us about. But before he does that, he's going to tell us a little bit about Camp Hill and what's been going on there. So, Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Camp Hill, Alabama is in Tallapoosa County in uh, East Alabama. It's a little town of about a thousand folks and uh, probably 60% below the poverty lines, 90% African American. And about three weeks ago, we got a hailstorm that showed me what the power of hailstorms can do. And we've had softball to grapefruit size hail for around 15 to 20 minutes throughout the little town, about, mm. you know, nine square miles, and it affected 98% of the town. We lost about 80 to 90% of our cars were totaled. All 50 cars at public housing were totaled. We don't have a grocery store. We don't have a laundromat. Uh, You know, we've got a couple of convenience stores and a Dollar General, like many rural areas, but it's a mile from the center of town. We've got a fairly vulnerable population, a lot of elderly folks, uh, a lot of developmentally uh, disabled folks, and uh, it's a tough situation for what we're dealing with. It's distinctly devastating in that uninsured, underinsured folks can't get their roofs fixed. Some can't even afford the deductibles. And even if they could, you know, the, they're not getting enough money to fix these roofs. So we've probably got 450 homes damaged that all will need roofs. Every, just about every uh, resident, every business, every church here will need new roofs. Uh, sadly, Dozens and dozens of those are covered with tarps right now, and we don't have a disaster declaration. We have uh, did the EMA assessment, and we are looking, you know, to get that, hopefully get that disaster declaration, but we don't have it yet. So, yeah, that was was what I was going to ask is, you know, what has been the response of government at the local level, the state level, and even federal level? What kind of resources or support, if any, has been provided to this community? 
Well, I have to say the the local uh, leadership has been fantastic. You know, they're they're Good. doing everything and for their people. Uh, we're working with County Commissioner T.C. Coley, who has just been phenomenal. Former co- uh, colleague I, of mine. I actually worked with T.C. I remember many interesting conversations with T.C., so I'm glad glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, good, good guy, and and has been out on the EMA assessments with us. Has made all the calls that you know he could. Got us connected with Congressman Mike Rogers' office uh, on a meeting, and of course we haven't heard anything since from Congressman Mike Rogers. Uh, but the assessment's been sent to the state. Local EMA has been phenomenal, and they are doing everything they can to get the help that they need. Jason Moran, the EMA director of Tallapoosa County has been just wonderful to work with, uh, but we're just kind of hanging in limbo right now, wondering if we're going to get that declaration. Right, right. Uh, so what are y'all doing in the meantime? I mean, it, it sounds to me like the community is is kind of banding together to just do the work that needs to be done. Is, is that pretty much what's going on? Is, is you and your, your folks, your friends and colleagues down there are just uh, just banding together, doing some mutual aid? Sure. The volunteer fire department here has been phenomenal. They did a swift water rescue early in the storm and they've tarped a couple hundred houses. And um, sadly, uh, we are also affected by another disaster in that many people are familiar with the Dadeville shooting. What they don't realize is that was a great deal of Camp Hill folks. That's 10 minutes from us. Uh, The Mm. family hosting the party, wonderful family in town, uh, you know, lost their son, Phil Dowdell as good a kid as you could ever hope to meet, had a very bright future. And the same volunteer fire department, sadly, was some of the first responders to that shooting last Saturday night. Oh, no. Right. We've got a lot of folks here in town with injured children. They were. We have a family that's been displaced. Their son is going to be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. Um, We've got... uh, a lot of folks that uh, were trying to get these roofs fixed to where the water's leaking in, that their children, they're going to make it, but they were also uh, shot as well. And and the whole story hasn't been told from that particular tragedy. But when it is, people will realize that we had a lot of our best kids injured and, and taken away from us in this town. Yeah, it's just, it's it's unbelievable to think a small town that already you know, had its fair share of struggles and challenges would endure this historic storm where everyone is affected. Everyone's home, everyone's car, uh, everyone's place of worship is affected. And then to have this tragic shooting uh, just a few weeks later, it's it's really, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking for the community. And I really appreciate that you're down there doing what you can to help. And I appreciate uh, the efforts of the volunteer fire department, you know, Commissioner Coley, everyone who is doing something, uh, you know, it's it's just a it's a tragedy, and our real really I believe our entire state should band together and and rally behind this community because there are so many needs. Could you speak to that? What are some of you know you you've spoken to it a little bit already, but you know what are some of the the needs of the community there? Like how can people actually help and pitch in themselves? For sure. We we have had a, uh, a lot of donations from from some of the bigger orgs and churches come in for food and things like that. That's been fantastic. 
the uh, Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints uh, has provided us not only with the software to manage this, but with a tractor-trailer load of food that we are continuing to distribute. Uh, Red Cross, uh, we got 15,000 shelf-stable meals. Uh, the, the food and all those things right now, those needs are being met because of the people on the ground here working to do that outreach. For me personally, as you said, um, formerly of Hometown Action, uh, long-term recovery and what Camp Hill needs doesn't necessarily fall under their mission. And so um, in a move that was more out of necessity than desire, because, you know, I still uh, love and admire many of my colleagues at Hometown, uh, there is uh, there's something that we're doing in forming the Alabama Center for Rural Organizing and Systemic Solutions better known as a cross. And we're gonna headquarter that here, uh, me, some of the volunteer fire department, some of the locals to try and manage the long-term recovery here. Uh, that The big thing that we really need right now is if there are people who can tarp roofs because this is just Band-Aids that we're putting on. And there's so many things that will come up in the future. Uh, some of the families who have been affected by both the storm and the, the shooting have a great deal of needs, but, uh, you know, I'll give you the information to get in touch with me. That's going to be the best way for me to direct folks. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit more about Across. What, you know, what exactly do you plan to do with this new project and uh, how can folks get plugged in? We're planning this as if FEMA's not coming. Like we're not even thinking right. about that. We're hoping for it. We're working for it. We've already started a case management system for the people affected. We're going to do this in the way that a lot of long-term recovery committees that I've been a part of in the past uh, do. A lot of times it's outside entities. We're going to create our own uh, method. We've already begun uh, with the case management, hopefully matching individuals with nonprofits, churches, individuals who want to help so that we can just match need to resource. That is going to be the community resilience side of what we're doing. And another really neat thing I think that's being born out of this, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the volunteer fire department and I, we're going to work to form the uh, Hook and Ladder Disaster Academy. And what that's going to be is that this volunteer fire department is going to go to other volunteer fire departments who are open to it and train them on this system that we've developed to manage this. Because our rural communities, quite often, the volunteer fire departments, you know, the disasters fall upon them. And so as sad and tragic as all of this is, I try to focus on the fact that there's going to be some some good changes that come out of this that help us because, you know, you know, I me, mean, my heart's in the rural south. It's where I come from. Mm -hmm. I want to help create new ways and new models for these other small towns that have few resources, you know, to, to use what they have. Uh, so that is uh, that's essentially uh, what. Uh, sorry. Okay. Oh, sorry. I guess somebody, uh, well, I, but, uh, I got to say, what, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. And I. I. I agree with you. I hope that despite all of this tragedy, that there are there's some good that comes out of it. And I think there already is some good that's coming out of it because you see, uh, you know, the better side of humanity there with the folks like yourself who are pitching in and doing what they can, whether it's financially or physically, uh, to really support people and lift people up uh, and give folks, you know, a, a hand up. Uh, and I think that's really important. So uh, do y'all have an official, you know, social media page yet or like how could folks right. contact you? Because uh, I know this is a very new thing uh, yeah. and obviously all of, you know, this is very fresh. So I know it's, you know, fluid in motion, but uh, 
you know, folks are interested in learning more about Camp Hill and, and what's going on there, the recovery efforts and helping you out with the cross, you know, how could they reach out? Best way is to email me, Warren at acrossalabama.org. You know, our focus now, right now, is getting the help, immediate response that we need to get, that, that we've been, you know, just neck deep in for, for three weeks. Uh, that will come. Uh, and there aren't, uh, part of the reason that we're, we're doing this is because there's no nonprofit in this town doing the work like what we're doing. Uh, so just reach out to me at that email uh, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. And uh, the requisite social media sites, websites, everything will sure. come soon as soon as we get some of these roofs fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So I would encourage folks, if you're part of an organization, if you're part of a union and, and y'all are looking to do some good in the world, here is a great opportunity to lift up our neighbors uh, who really could use the support. Uh, Warren, was there anything else I didn't ask you that you wanted to share this morning with folks as we wrap up? Oh, no, I, I appreciate you taking the time to tell this story, because as you said, we're dealing with a town that is maybe one of the first to deal with a natural disaster and a mass shooting at the same time. Right. And so it, it, it's going to be a long road. But with y'all amplifying this, folks getting in touch with us, uh, you know, we can't do this alone. It's going to take all of us together. So thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Absolutely. Warren, thank you so much for all you're doing. Best of luck with this new project. Uh, definitely keep us posted on what's going on down there and how we can help. Thank you. Appreciate you. All right, folks. So Warren at acrossalabama.org. I really I encourage folks, if, you, if you're listening, if you have any capacity to support, whether that's in person or chipping in a couple bucks or spreading the word, uh, just spreading the word on your, your own social media networks, letting folks know. Uh, I will say uh, Tread by uh, Lee Hedgepeth, Hedgepeth, I believe is his name. He just put out a good article about the situation down in Camp Hill. Uh, it's really some of the only media I've seen, so... Uh, definitely recommend folks check that out. So, yeah, really appreciate what Warren's doing down there. He's doing great work. And, you know, it's just tragic to see a community like that, you know, dealing with such, such you know, such adversity back to back like that. Um, and, and not surprised that we're seeing a lack of systemic support. Uh, but I hope to see that change as more more folks get involved and, and spread the word. So I uh, wanted to wrap things up this morning. Uh, a couple of reminders. I do want to remind folks that we also air on Unclaimed Mysteries Radio, which is a Huntsville-based internet radio station. You can listen live on Live 365. Just search Unclaimed Mysteries Radio. As we're wrapping up here on FM, we have some reminders and some events to share. Want to let folks know that Jacob's new article called "An Explosion, Layoffs, and the End of Paper in J" just came out uh, with In These Times Magazine and Real News Network. So you can go to InTheseTimes.com uh, or check out Real News Network for a link to that. As we mentioned earlier, the North Alabama Labor Council has their barbecue today, Earth Day, April twenty-second at Bronze Spring Park. That's the one over by Drake Avenue. Uh, it's for union members and allies and friends here in the Tennessee Valley, so y'all come out and enjoy some food and fellowship. I wanted to take a moment of personal privilege to give some IATSE 900 shout-outs today. 
Shout out to Mayatsi Ken, who've been supporters of the Valley Labor Report. Uh, we had a conversation the other night as we were getting ready to break down a concert, and um, the the idea of radio shout outs came up. So Rachel, Nicole, if you're listening, here's your shout out like we discussed. Uh, my union sister Rachel is a big fan of the show and also re- recently helped out our musician friends in Obed-Edom with their music video. Thanks to Deborah and Aaron for their generous support. We appreciate it. Shout out to my brother Greg, who has given me some good ideas for the show and has a wealth of knowledge on Jefferson and Walker counties. Shout out to my union sister Sally, who has been very supportive and even told her neighbor about the show. And thanks to my vice president Bob, who's been supportive and loves to introduce us as the loudest voice for labor in the Tennessee Valley. Really appreciate my union Ken and wanted to give some well-deserved shout outs. I am proud to be part of Local 900. Looking forward to many good things ahead uh, in our union. Next, as they do each month, our friends at Labor Notes are hosting a series of online trainings. If you're looking to get involved in your union or activism in general, I highly recommend it. In May, they'll do a three-part Secrets of a Successful Organizer series, as well as a workshop on what to do when your union breaks your heart. You can find out more at labornotes.org. Our community, our environment, and our ecosystem is under attack. Join the Journey for Justice Alliance for their Equity or Else Town Hall today, April 22nd, in Birmingham at the Movement Fellowship Church at 3 p.m. The Alabama International Fringe Festival is a three-day event taking place on May 12th, 13th, and 14th down in Montgomery area, and that will include a performance of Toll Puddle, the musical, which is a musical about union struggles in 1800s England, Hoping to talk to the director soon. Uh, if you're not on our email list at tvlr.fm, definitely sign up for that to stay up to date. You can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. You can donate or buy our merch at tvlr.fm. Don't forget to like, sh- share, and subscribe. We're heading into overtime where we're going to do a special Earth Day theme- themed episode that you don't want to miss. All power to the workers.